Father, we love to sing together. I love to sing alone. But there is nothing like singing with your people. It is our prayer to you as we sing in unison. It's the only time we speak to you together, actually speaking the same words together. This is prayer from our hearts, and they move us to greater affection and love for you. And so, Father, thank you for the privilege, a privilege that other religions very seldom know. And we know every time we meet together, we sing your praises, we worship you. Thank you for that precious gift and for the gift of your word and for the gift of this half hour or so of looking into your word. Feed us, Lord, satisfy us, convict us, change us, make us more like Christ, help us to hate sin more, to love Christ more, to turn from the flesh and walk in the spirit, to live for Christ and know the benefits of walking with him. We praise you for what you'll do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want to talk to you about a very practical issue, namely how to conquer temptation. How to conquer temptation. The objective reality that God now views us as completely identified with Christ does not mean that Christians are no longer tempted to sin. In fact, Jesus, who lived with his people as a perfect man, he too was tempted. The author of Hebrews is unmistakable on this point when he says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. We also know from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus was even tempted directly by Satan. I'm not sure any of us have been directly tempted by Satan, but Jesus was. Nevertheless, he never gave in to those temptations. And my question is, how did he do that? Well, he had the advantage of being God, yes. But he was Jesus the man who just spent 40 days in the wilderness without eating. And so the tempter comes to him and tempts him to use his divine power to turn stones into bread. Christ responds with Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by bread alone. By the way, he begins that with, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And with each temptation, which we don't have time to look at this morning, Jesus offers a scriptural response. He offers a scriptural response. And we can learn from this. How should we respond to temptation? Better yet, how can we weaponize scripture in our own defense, to resist the devil, to flee youthful lust, to successfully take our stand against the appeal of the flesh, the world, and the devil. 
Paul is going to offer us some very practical and powerful counsel, a strategy, not the only strategy in the Bible, but probably the preeminent strategy for dealing with temptation. But before we go there, we need to finish last week's message. I know some of you were stunned and almost had heart failure when I stepped away from the pulpit at 30 minutes. So let's take a moment to refresh and with no tie. Um, let's refresh on this passage that we looked at last time. Stand with me together and uh, let's read Colossians 2, beginning with verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severe treatment of the body, but they are of, listen carefully, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Last week, we were introduced to some of the deceptions the false teachers were selling in first century Colossae. Their message was very simple, namely... That in religion, Jesus Christ is a great starting point. But if you really want to flourish as a Christian, you need more. What exactly did they suggest that more may be? Well, first of all, they suggest we need various forms of religious sanctimony and religious practices that make one morally superior, or at least make you feel more superior. But they really believed it. The text clearly identifies four sanctimonious practices, and we covered these last week. First, chapter 2, verse 8, they offered humanism or man-made religion, religious tradition as one. We, I called it humanism. You could call it moralism, perhaps. Um, second is found in uh, chapter 2, verse 16. They recommended legalism, borrowing from the ceremonial law of Judaism, Verse 18, they suggested mysticism, which included worshiping angels and having visions. And then finally, they advocated asceticism, which called for severe self-denial, even to the point of self-injury. Now, these religious leaders would probably argue that they were not departing from Orthodox Christianity. They would likely defend their extra-biblical practices by submitting that their only concern was that we experience the fullness of the Christian life, that we get all that we possibly can and flourish as Christians. Nevertheless, we know that when anything is added to Christ, it is an abomination. Just read Galatians, um, 
no matter what the intention or how reasonable it may sound, adding anything to Christ is an affront to the gospel itself and tends to draw people away from Christ rather than draw them deeper into fellowship with Christ. Listen, the tradition, some of the things that I mentioned last week that Christians have practiced for years and years, uh, some of them are a little bit odd. We look back on them now and think they were rather strange. And you know what? You can get focused on these things that are not unlawful. They're not necessarily unbiblical. They're just added to Christ. And you can get focused on that that good thing so much that you maybe wake up one day and realize, well, I haven't really spent any time with Christ. I haven't fellowship with Christ. Paul's fear was clearly that some might be drawn back into their old way of living. Witness his veiled warning in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where he tells us that God has reconciled, listen to this, um, this condition, this first-class condition. God has reconciled you if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and not moved away from the gospel that you have heard. Paul's concern was that perhaps somehow the false teachers would tempt certain members of the church to drift away from the gospel and drift away from the all-sufficiency of Christ. How should those who are united to Christ, think about humanism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Well, we should think of them the way th Paul thought about them. And the way Paul thought, thought about them is like this. They were, and by the way, this is point two from last week, they were obsolete shadows. So here we're picking up where I left off last time. They, these four things, and anything like them, are nothing but obsolete shadows. No doubt the false teachers would argue, again, that their added traditions and practices are authenticated by the fact that so many of them were grounded in Old Testament law. I mean, they came right out of the Bible. But before they can make their case, Paul issues a response. Namely, that Christians should submit should not submit to judgments against them that are based on Old Testament ceremonial law because, verse 16, they are but a shadow of what is to come. They are but a shadow of what was to come. Christ, however, is the substance. The shadows only serve to point to the substance. With the coming of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel, Christ is available to all who believe. And those ceremonial laws, therefore, are of no value. They are obsolete. All of the ceremonial law is gone in God's eyes. Why? Because Christ has come. Look at the feasts. All of the feasts pointed to the coming Christ. All of the festivals the Sabbath day. Jesus is our Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, expresses an almost identical idea. There we read, for, listen to this, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never make perfect those who draw near. It can never deal with their sin. 
Then, in the verses that follow there in Hebrews, Christ's atoning death on the cross is spoken of as the ultimate sacrifice to which all the Old Testament sacrifices could only point. They were markers. They were shadows. And I wonder why Paul uses the word shadow. I I think he's trying to communicate something about these false teachings that are true about shadows. Namely, what are they? Nothing. They are not the presence of anything. They are the absence of something. They are the absence of light. These men were obscuring the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ by adding their traditions to the gospel and to the person of Christ. And that brings us to the third point, and that is the authentic substance. Jesus alone is God's authentic substance. What do sinners need for salvation? They need Christ alone. What do Christians need for sanctification? Christ alone. What do all believers need in order to be full and flourish in Christ? Answer, Christ alone. Now, when I say Christ alone for all of these things, don't misunderstand me. When I say Christ alone, I'm not discounting the church, for she is the body of Christ. And I'm not depreciating the scriptures, for they are the words of Christ. And I'm not laying aside or disregarding baptism and the Lord's table. These are the ordinances of Christ. The false teachers, however, were distorting the light of the glory of God, and they were adding things that were not in keeping with Christ. While professing that their teachings and practices were were for enhancing Christian experience, they really only were obscuring the sufficiency of Christ. They were putting what man has made in the place of God. No wonder Paul concludes by telling us in verse 23 that these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severe treatment of the body. But listen again, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value. Jesus Christ is the substance of our faith. He is not a religious shadow. He's not a phantom. He's not the absence of something. He is the presence of something, and he is the source of everything. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Christian, Paul goes on to say, you are full. You are filled. You are complete in him. You need nothing else. You need none of those phony baloney, man-made, sanctimonious philosophies and traditions. They are mere shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. Thus concludes last week's sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Now it also concludes our study of the second chapter of Colossians, but I must confess that I find the chapter break here to be rather unhelpful because chapter 3 
In chapter 3, Paul merely continues the train of thought that he had in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2. And so let's take a moment to pick up where Paul leaves off here at the end of chapter 1. By the way, just a reminder that these chapter breaks are not inspired. You know, Calvin and, and uh, Knox and some of the other guys just thought for study purposes, for keeping track of what we're talking about, they inserted the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. Very helpful, not inspired. And we just need to be aware of that when we come to a chapter end. Keep reading, keep reading if you're studying the Word. And, and let's keep reading here. Now watch this. If then, this is chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, keep, uh, keep seeking, or seek if you're in the ESV, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, it's important to note here from the beginning of chapter 3 that the, that the last words of chapter 2 leave us hanging. It's really important to see this. Paul ends the chapter by telling us that humanism, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism cannot enable us to subdue the flesh, at least not in any way that God accepts. They are not, a, they are not effective for battling temptation. So what are we to do? Well, if you stop at the end of chapter 2, we have no idea. All we know is that these four things, don't, don't even try them, they're not going to work. So where do we go? Do we go looking for something else? Do we come up with a new tradition, a new approach to battling sin? First, notice with me, I think Paul tells us in these four verses what we are to do about temptation now that he has discounted those four other things. So notice with me, first of all, that Paul appeals to us as those whose resurrection has already occurred. He says, if then you have been raised. And, and the idea here is he's assuming that these are believers, right? He's at least speaking to them as believers. And he's saying, since, uh, since you have been raised with Christ. So he's assuming your resurrection has already occurred. And at first blush, this may seem a little strange because in order to be raised, one must first have died. And yet, here we are, Sunday morning, sitting in our pews. We all look mostly, some of us very much, alive. And this may continue to seem strange until someone points out that three verses earlier, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul appeals to us as those who have indeed already died. Look at that, chapter 2, verse 20. If or since you have died with Christ, and then 3, 1, if you have been raised with Christ. These are binary truths. They are in the same orbit. They're talking about the same thing. You may rightly ask, well, when did I die? Well, listen, the way God thinks of you now, you died when Jesus died. And when was I raised? Well, God says, 
when Christ was raised. You say, well, I wasn't even born then. Yes, you were not. But since before the creation of the world, this is what God has done. Once again, beloved, Paul is appealing to the doctrine of our union with Christ. I'm telling you, this subsumes all the other doctrines. The common metaphor of Scripture is that when you received Jesus Christ, your old self died, and your new self was resurrected to new life. Life, get these words, in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. This metaphor is so significant that just as Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he commissioned his followers to make disciples, how? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism, the act of being completely immersed in water and brought into the air again, is intended to be a picture of our dying with Christ and being raised with him to live a new life, which is why the second half of Colossians, which we are about to begin, is all about how do I live now? The indicative is you are in Christ, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapters 3 and 4, how do I live now in light of the reality that I am in union with Christ? Significantly, Paul tells us in Romans 6, the passage we read at the beginning of the service, that when we died with Christ, and by the way, Romans 8 that I read in my prayer this morning also says this, when, when we died with Christ, we died to sin. He says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. But how does that work out practically? Now, I don't know about you, but that metaphor is inspired. It's exactly what God wanted us to hear. But for me, it, it has been difficult to get my head around that. Accept it? Yes, but get my head around it. What does it mean? What does it mean when he says, I died and it has changed my relationship with sin so that sin has no dominion over me? And that brings us to the last point here, defeating temptation. And Before we dive into the question, let me share why I believe it's relevant to this text. First, I think that battling temptation is within the interpretive range of this text because the verse immediately before it points to the religious in inventions of the false teachers. And Paul says they were no, of no value against fleshly indulgence. I take that to mean that they viewed their religious traditions and practices, at least in part, as a means of subduing the flesh, a means of batting down or batting away sin. And Paul says, however, they don't work. And that leaves us, as I said at the end of chapter 2, asking, well, what should we do? What then should we do to subdue the flesh? How do we handle temptation? Second, 
I think Paul is giving us a means of defeating temptation because the verse is immediately after this section. Verse 5 speaks explicitly about the need to, and I quote, put to death what is earthly in you. And then he specifically names no less than 10 sins in two separate lists. This is all about sin. This is all about how believers should deal with sin. And so how should a Christian approach defeating temptation? Well, think about it like this. Now, this is just an analogy that helps me think through this. And then once I've received the help, then I go back to the analogy of dying and rising again. And it's very, very helpful. And let's see if you think it's helpful. When you are living in unbelief, it's as if you were married to sin. And... Because you were married to sin, you always submitted to sin's impulses and abuses. You were identified with sin. You lived in sin. You are, according to Romans, in Adam. I didn't want to say married to Adam, though. You're, you're married to sin. Sin always promises freedom. It always did. And happiness. But in the end, it always delivers brokenness and bondage. You were hopelessly bound in your sin. Amen? You remember that? Remember when you were hopelessly bound in sin? I do. I mean, I don't remember you. I remember me. <laughs> Hopeless. And whether you knew it or not, it would, it would eventually kill you. It would kill you, perhaps physically, but more importantly, just like God said to Adam and Eve, on the day you shall eat it, you will surely die. And it was only by his grace that they didn't die immediately, but we die because of our sin. And there you were in bondage to the one to whom you were married. But one day you heard the good news of Jesus Christ and you believed that he not only had the authority to rescue you from such bondage, but he actually delighted to do so. In fact, he was determined to set you free because of his great love for you. And on that very day, you repented and believed. Your repentance, to continue the analogy, was the equivalent of divorcing sin. And your faith was the equivalent of marrying Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Now, as the bride of Christ, you are no longer under sin's abusive authority. Now you're free. Now you're loved. Now you're protected. Now you're abundantly cared for, as if you were Christ's very body. Moreover, all of his blood-bought benefits are now your inheritance but not an inheritance you have to wait for, but one you get immediately when you are in Christ. And if you are in the Spirit, you are in Christ. If you know Jesus, you are in Christ. We will, he, Christ, will never leave you nor forsake you. Your marriage to him can never be broken. Married to Christ, sin Listen carefully. Married to Christ, sin no longer has dominion over you. And someone will rightly ask, but wait a minute. If, if it's true 
if all of this is true, then why am I still so often tempted to sin? Well, think of it like this. Just because you're divorced from sin doesn't mean it won't show up on your door from time to time and make demands of you. It doesn't mean he won't come to your new home pleading with you to return. He will still try to entice you in hopes of enslaving you once again. The question is, how do you defeat sin's temptation when it comes knocking at your door? He no longer has any authority over you, but how do you get rid of the guy? I heard this week of a businessman who was asked how he was able to remain faithful to his marriage, even though he frequently traveled for business. And the man replied, if ever I find myself the least bit tempted, I reach into my briefcase where I have a photograph of my beautiful wife, who has been my faithful companion for 30 years. And I look at that photo and remind myself how wonderful it is to be married to such a woman, how delightful it is to share life with her and freely fellowship with her. That, my friend, he said, is all I need. How do you defeat temptation? Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, that is, if you've been married to Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on Him. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died. Your marriage to sin is over, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. On a practical note, I think there are the two most important things you can do to battle the enticements of temptation to sin are, first of all, to fellowship with Christ daily and frequently. I think that's hinted at here in this text. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Well, what's where Christ is? Christ, his Father, Spirit, God. The word seek in verse 1 of chapter 3 is better rendered keep seeking. It's present active imperative. It's a command. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. Keep on seeking. When you get up in the morning, start seeking. In the middle of the day, make time to be seeking. In the night, seek him. Seek him. Seek the things above where Christ is. And where is Christ? Well, he, metaphorically speaking, and I mean by this biblical metaphor, he is seated on the right hand of God. That is, seated in a position of all authority over heaven and earth. And you are married to him. You are seated with him if you are in him. And that means everything you need to battle temptation is readily available. You don't have to order it on Amazon and hope it arrives on time. It's there. He is there. You're married to Christ, and everything that is His is already yours. So keep seeking and never stop seeking 
things that are above. Or as Jesus would say in John 15, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. As the branch can bear no fruit unless it is attached to the vine. So you, apart from me, can do nothing. Now listen to me. The most important part about battling temptation is what you do when you're not battling temptation. Let me say it again. The most important part of battling temptation is what you do when you're not battling temptation. Do you fellowship with Christ regularly? Are you enjoying the benefits of being married to Christ? The Christian life is not, first of all, listen carefully, the Christian life is not, first of all, about doing. It is, first of all, about delighting. You say, are you sure about that? Yes! What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind. Delight in Him. The greatest commandment in the Bible is to delight in Him. Which means to actively Actively loving and experiencing the love of Christ, that is the most important part of your salvation. But such love must be cultivated by proper means and extended time. The second most important thing you can do to battle the enticements of temptation is to meditate on the glory of Christ's person. Paul says in verse 2, set your mind on things above. The word set here is also uh, an active imperative. It means to ponder. So are, are you tracking with this? He's commanding you to ponder or to let one's mind dwell on or to meditate upon something. And what is that something? Christ. When you find yourself tempted to sin, dig into the briefcase of the Word of God and draw out the photograph of the one to whom you are now married, namely Christ. Remind yourself of his glory. Remind yourself of his character. Remind yourself of his love, his faithfulness, his gentleness. Remind yourself that he is meek and lowly at heart. Remind yourself of his mercy and his power. Bat away fresh incitements with fresh reflection on his deity, his sacrificial atonement, his resurrection, his ascension, his saving purposes, his authority over the angels, both holy and demonic. And the list goes on and on and on, and we know so very little of it because we so seldom apply the means or invest the time. How do you actively set your mind on things above in the battle against temptation? Well, you do it like Jesus did. I suggest you use Scripture. 
we forcefully turn our minds to scriptures that reveal the glory of Christ and we hold our mind there until the battle is won. I told you one time, one of our interns and dear family member, part of a family member of the church, part of a family, a member of a family in the church, (laughs) Seth Jones, I heard him one time. He was uh, mentoring a, a a brother in the church, a teenager, and I just happened to hear him say, what? You're not meditating on scripture? How do you battle lust? I'll never forget that. He's right. Would you like an example of a fresh scripture that needn't, you, didn't, you don't need to turn very far to find one? In fact, on the left side of my page, Turn one, and here's what I read. You want something to set your mind on things above? Set your mind on this when you feel temptation coming. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created on earth, And in heaven, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be thinking, so all I need to do is quote this. No, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, you need to take this to the one you're speaking to. You pray these things back to God. You engage your heart. Oh, Father, you have made Jesus. He is the image of God. He is your very likeness. Hebrews tells us that when we see Jesus, we see you. When I think about Jesus, I'm thinking about God. When I'm thinking about creation, I'm thinking about your creative work, your creative hands. When I think about the angels and the demons, I think of you as an authority over all of them. How can you not be in charge of every aspect of my life? By you and for you, everything was created, which means I think, oh, Father, that you have given all of these things to Jesus, even as he was the creator of them, he owns it all. He owns my house, he owns my wife, he owns my computer, he owns my phone, he owns the creek in the back of my yard, he owns my car, whether running or not, he owns my bank account, he owns my thoughts, he owns my heart. And you could spend an hour just working through a scripture like this. And I tell you, I doubt you could hardly do that 
without your mind being forcefully turned away from the flesh. And one reason why I think Christians are so often defeated by temptation is because we fail to seek things above when we are not being tempted. And because we're not seeking him when we're not being tempted, we find ourselves unprepared for the battle when we are being tempted. What do I pray? What do I say? Lord, help me. Help! That's not, not a bad prayer. But can you turn to Scripture? It's okay to write Scriptures or references in the back of your Bible so you've, you've always got your gun loaded. It's better to memorize them and meditate on them. But the problem is not merely a lack of fellowship with Christ and heavenly things. It's also that we spend too much time dabbling with earthly things. You know, I think that kind of right thinking can tempt us to create new laws that are very contrary to the very thing Paul is saying here. And so we avoid doing that while at the same time we recognize that some of the lawful pleasures of life we spend too much time with. We don't set up a new law to deal with that. We just, just focus on Christ more. And get your conscience a little more sensitive. They frequently and subtly, even though no one would say they are out of bounds or unlawful, they tend to turn our affections away from Christ. And then when old sin comes knocking at our door, enticing and making demands, our hearts are unprepared and we are unarmed for the battle. So, beloved, this is a call to Scripture memory. It's a call to Scripture meditation. It's a call to a deeper and daily fellowship with Christ. And by God's grace, may we, in employing these things, enjoy the benefits of walking in a manner worthy of our union with Christ for the glory of God and our own joy. Beloved, those who are in Christ are able to shatter temptation by decisively occupying their minds with his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word as we do every week. We don't worship the scriptures, but we do love them because by them you reveal yourself and by them you guard us and protect us and you teach us what true flourishing in the Christian life is like. Help us, Father, now to take these things and not Walk away as forgetful hearers, but as effectual doers of your word. Not as a new law, but rather as an expression of love for Christ. These things we ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.